Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 12th chapter. Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 18 and continue to verse 27. This is God's Word. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, uh, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we are grateful for this, your word. It is a living word, you tell us. It has the power and the strength to cut through bone and marrow, to cut even all the way to our souls. And with you wielding the word this morning, we know that you can do it both with conviction and with comfort, and we will undoubtedly need both. We would pray this morning, Lord, that you would use this word in a mighty way in our hearts and in our lives. Would you now, by the Spirit, capture our attention as we seek to give ourselves over to you and to this word, and that as we come to know it and study it together, we would find that it has a home inside of us and begins to change us forevermore. Lord, meet us here, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed in the course of the service so far that we have a bit of a theme around uh, resurrection. Our confession of sin focusing on 1 Corinthians uh, 15, themes in some of the hymns that we've already uh, sang with regards to uh, the resurrection and its power. You see in the text that we just read from Mark chapter 12 that it's a question around the resurrection that we have before us. And oh, what an odd question it is. What a strange and perplexing scenario. If you've never read this passage before, you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world is going on here? What are they talking about? Marrying a, a, a brother's wife and offspring and in the resurrection and seven of them dying and all of this craziness that it seems that we have right here in March chapter 12. What in the world 
is going on? Well, it's helpful when you realize at least this much that Mark is in a series of what we might call conflict narratives. Over the last several weeks, each time that we've approached the text of Mark, we have seen someone, whether it's the Herodians and the Pharisees last week or the scribes and the lawyers the week before, trying to catch Jesus in his words, trying to lay for him a snare that he might step in. For the goal, as we had learned in the previous chapter, was that they were out to destroy him. And one by one, they have come to Jesus in order to try to destroy him, setting before him what looks like impossible challenges to overcome. And that's what we have going on here in this section in Mark chapter 12. Again, yet another group has come to Jesus and they are seeking to attack him, to destroy him. Now, how weary Jesus must have been at this point, right? Uh, One group right after another, seeking to unload their ammunition theologically and politically and uh, all other directions in his way, and yet, up to this point, none have been able to draw blood. Uh, Jesus has made his way around each of these fiery darts, but if I were Jesus, and I'm not, I would be very weary I don't know about you, I'm not the sort of person who likes to fight. If I err, and I often do, you can ask my family, I err on the side of making cheap peace (laughs) rather than picking cheap fights. It's just the kind of person that I am. I'd rather just things be at peace. Now, we have no reason to think that Jesus would have felt similarly. In fact, he never erred, so it would be good for us not to think that at all. But we have good reason to believe that he would be wearied at this point. He is a man, after all, a real man, a man with real emotions, a man with a a spiritual weariness, a man who needed uh, to often retreat with his heavenly Father from the fray of the battle throughout his ministry. It's not speculative to at least suggest that these verbal fisticuffs with these variety of religious groups were exhausting to the Lord. But what Mark has been showing us over and over again is that Jesus is committed to his mission. Whereas I might pull back on the reins and exit this race, uh, Jesus is continuing in the march. He is a faithful Savior He has come here to go through every challenge, every crucible. He has come to fight even the greatest of fights. Uh, These little sparring matches are nothing compared to the challenge that is just a few chapters away from us, the challenge of the greatest conflict in the Gospel of Mark, and that is the cross. Mark is trying to teach us that each of these moments of attack of Jesus are building up to the great attack. These are just the the beginning of the, the battle lines being drawn until the war is really faced. And it's here where now another group has come and another step is taken towards the accomplishment of his mission. As we look at this text together, I want to look at it with you in three ways this morning. I want you to see first the dilemma, the dilemma in this text. I want you to see secondly the defense, the defense that's within this text. And I want you to see thirdly the direction. 
the direction that's given in this text. The dilemma, the defense, and the direction. I want to start with this uh, dilemma. We saw last time that the Pharisee and the Herodians had, had done their best to uh, try to do Jesus in with the question, is it lawful for us to pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? And we saw Jesus uh, route uh, their trap. And now we have another group. They're called the Sadducees. You see it right there at the opening of the text there in verse 18. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sadducees, we haven't really seen them in the text of Mark uh, up to now. They were an aristocratic, um, lay, uh, priestly uh, order in the first century. They were of Jewish origin. Uh, but they were largely despised by the, the, the Jews, generally speaking, and especially by the, the Pharisees because they were collaborators with the Romans. Uh, they were all the time doing business with the Romans because it was in uh, their best interest to gain uh, monetary uh, benefit and also power and influence. And so the Sadducees were looked down upon those who were kind of compromisers, uh, spiritually speaking. In fact, it's kind of an interesting note that they were the ones who were employed uh, by the Romans to manage the money changers and the selling of animals in the temple. So you might recall in a, in a chapter previous that Jesus had cleansed the temple. He'd gone in and thrown over those tables and money changers and run everybody out. I, I can't imagine the Sadducees were really happy about that. Uh, It could be that now they have come to sort of make things even, to get back at Jesus, whatever it is, the reason we are sure that they are here to do him in. But you can see that the focus of the text is not really on the Sadducees directly or their alliance with, with Rome or even their work in the temple, but really the focus, interestingly, of the text is on their theology, what they actually think about God. Notice Mark tells us right at the beginning there in verse 18, he gives us this little almost parenthetical-like note. He says, they are the ones, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. It tells us a little bit about their theology. That's what Mark is indicating, and of course it plays directly into the story that they tell a little bit later in the text. The Sadducees denied the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, the resurrection, a little bit like last week in that we said that taxes was a hot-button issue in the first century. Well, the doctrine of the resurrection was a theological hot-button issue in the first century. Now, it has been in the 20th and now in the 21st century as well. Many deniers of the resurrection exist with us today, Um, usually on the liberal side of the theological quadrant, uh, those who would demythologize the Scripture, deconstruct it, those who would try to drain from it any supernatural, anything that couldn't be explained by reason or science. We can't believe and trust what the Bible would teach us about uh, the resurrection. Uh, Those same claims exist today. If you've read uh, The God Delusion or you're familiar with The New Atheist, they make a lot of hay with uh, regarding the resurrection and its absurdity, its ridiculousness. Well, in some way, shape, or form, the, the Sadducees sort of land in that, in that category. They thought the doctrine of the resurrection was, well, uh, absurd. And they were at odds with the Pharisees, who were vehement defenders of the doctrine of the, of the resurrection. 
And so the Sadducees are those who deny the resurrection. The Pharisees are those who would assert the resurrection. And this was part of the theological sparring uh, side by side that would happen with uh, these two groups. Now, it's easy to get that confused. Who is it that believes in the resurrection? The Pharisees. Who is it that doesn't believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees. And of course, my Sunday school teacher taught me very wisely when I was six, seven years old. Easy way to remember this, of course, is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're so sad, you see, right? Okay, keep that straight. That's why they don't believe in the resurrection. And that's an important one. They want to, in this story that they're telling, to show us how absurd the resurrection really is, and then also trusting that Jesus, of the more orthodox kind, which the Pharisees would have considered themselves uh, to be, and, and uh, would probably clay claim to uh, believing in the resurrection and thus show him to be a fool and someone who could not be trusted theologically. This, in short order, is what they are aiming for. And so they put him in this dilemma. They ask him, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife." Now, if you're hearing this story and you're tempted to completely dismiss it as absolutely wildly speculative, I'm there with you. Um, I think most of the people in that day and time probably uh, would have been. In fact, I, as I was reading this story earlier this week, I thought to myself, why was an investigation not put out on this woman? Uh, who each of these men are being met. Why is that not in the text? I mean, fast track to the grave, marry this woman. That's all I see in this text so far. Awfully suspicious. Um, that aside, don't miss what is the real pastoral concern, real concern of some of us here even in this room. And that is if you have been, well, let's say you're a, you're a Christian man and you, you married a Christian woman and, and that Christian woman died and then you remarried another Christian woman, um, then the question would be presumably that, that both of these of your spouses are going to be in, in heaven, that when you get to heaven, which one is going to be your spouse? I mean, this is a this is a conundrum uh, um, of some pastoral uh, concern, some theological question. Some might, um, even last night as I was quizzing my children on this, uh, they all thought it should be the first uh, of the spouses because, well, she's the first. And, 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 and yet, I think an argument could be made that, the, well, the second, the, the last made it to the end. And... Uh, she deserves something as well uh, in, in all of that. And, and so we, we discussed what that would you know, potentially be. But in this case, we don't just have a couple of spouses in a, in a normal situation that may have happened in death and widowhood and all of those things. We have seven brothers. Notice we don't have seven brides like the American musical. We have just seven brothers and we have one bride. We have one bride here. It's yikes. 
Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that the Sadducees are trying to show how ridiculous the notion of the resurrection is. How are you going to get out of this one, Jesus? Someone's got to sort out uh, the, 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 the legal marriage status in the resurrection of these seven brothers who had this one uh, woman for a wife. It's a bit of a resurrection riddle. Now, what's interesting is behind this crazy story, there's actually some Bible that you need to, to know. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. We won't go there, but note that for you note takers. You can take a look uh, later today at Deuteronomy chapter 25. But actually, behind this story is what's called the Leveret marriage principle. The Leveret marriage principle. You could read it there in Deuteronomy 25. As you can surmise from the story, the the, the, the Leveret marriage tradition actually stipulated that a man's brother, um, if, if a man's brother died, it was his brother's responsibility to marry his widow if there was no heir, so there was no children in the first marriage, so that he could bear a child with his brother's widow, and that child would actually legally not be his, but be his brother's. And the goal and the role of that was that they would then carry the legacy of the family name, the family inheritance, the family property on into the next generation. It was a way of loving and preserving your father's legacy. Now, we kind of look at this and go, yikes, but this was actually a way of caring for the community covenantally, caring for the family estate and the family name. Now, some of you are astute Bible readers and you're thinking to yourself, I think I've heard of this in the Bible. And yes, you have. You might remember that PG-13 uh, rated story in Genesis 38 of Judah, Onan, and Tamar. You might remember uh, Onan in, with some trickery decided, though he married the widow, decided not to bear a son uh, with her because he knew that the child would then be his brother's child and not his own and he would not inherit his brother's estate but his brother's estate would be given to another and, and out of his own selfishness he refused to bear a child with his brother's uh, widow. But maybe most famously, and uh, you ladies will get the chance to study that glorious story of Ruth uh, coming up this next year. But we see this with Ruth and Boaz in the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer, the strange sandal strap trading sandals at the end of the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with what I'm talking about, all of that is a ceremony surrounding this idea of the leveret marriage. Now, what's interesting is doing a little historical research yesterday on leveret marriage in the first century, it was, it's pretty clear that it pretty much had fallen out of use at this point, that people were not practicing uh, leveret marriage consistently in the first century anymore, which is, is interesting when you look at it. Um, the dilemma they put Jesus in is what this means is that the Sadducees are advancing a wildly imaginative scenario around an outmoded practice that pretty much no one used concerning a doctrine that they didn't even believe. That's what we have before us. That's how we know it's a trap. It's speculative. The practice is not even really going on in the first century, and they don't even believe in the resurrection. You should hear, you know, underneath their breath, <laughs> this silly resurrection. And, and what she's going to try to answer it. It's, the, guys, get your popcorn ready. Let, let's see what he's going to do to come out with this one. And of course, Jesus sees right through it, doesn't he? We see in the second part, we see Jesus' defense. Notice verse uh, 24. 
Is this not the reason you are wrong, Jesus says, that you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Almost more than in any other setting that we've seen Jesus up to now, he really cuts to the chase. He doesn't pull any punches. And one of the things that really jumped off to me as I was reading the text, especially as a 21st century reader now in the context that, that we're in, is how much what he says here makes moderns and postmoderns squirm. He makes a judgment, a very severe and clear judgment on the belief structure of the Sadducees. He says very simply, you're wrong. You're wrong. And if you didn't get it, he's going to say it again at the end of the text. You're quite wrong. You're quite wrong. Now, I don't have to tell you that we live in a time that it's increasingly radical to say that someone is wrong. Ours is a time that prefers discussion around perspectives and uh, opinions and vantage points. Uh, If we talk about truth, we talk about my truth. We talk about your truth. As if truth was subjectively rendered. um, As if it was individualized in some way. As if you could make or shape your own reality according to your beliefs. This came home again to me uh, this week in revisiting a, a section in Well, that podcast, This American Life, maybe some of you listened to it. Ira Glass was was speaking, a secular Jew, uh, was talking about being confused about why Jews and Christians and Muslims, uh, for for that matter, uh, believe that you should praise God. He was asking the question, what do you think God gets out of praise? Why do you think he needs uh, praise so much? And he asked a a friend this uh, question. And his friend said that he likes to think of God as simply all the good principles of the world coming together. And when he praises, he's basically committing himself to all the good principles in in the world. That's how he likes uh, to think of God. And Ira thought that was really helpful, uh, especially as uh, as a Jew who is an atheist and occasionally goes to synagogue to be comforted by prayers he doesn't believe. That's the world we live in. That's the context of the secular community of which we're, of which we're in. And in the dialogue, no one was wrong. Um, everyone had their own truth, their own way of viewing things, their own way of, of, of considering how, how life should be, should be lived. And it, it was on a kind of equal par. I mean, you're, you're a Muslim, you're, I'm, a, I'm a Jew, you're a Christian, but it's all relatively the same. We have different ways of kind of doing things, but um, they're all really basically the same thing in the end. Notice that Jesus doesn't talk like that. Just, just notice that. Just make that observation in the text. His words here to the Sadducees are ultimate and they're absolute. There's a very sharp line that he draws here between that which is right and that which is wrong. And in fact, he's going to go on to spell out quite specifically and correct them about how it is that they're thinking. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry, speaking of those in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. So this story was a ruse to begin with. 
But notice in the made-up scenario, they assumed or believed that marriage in this age is identical to, the, to marriage in the next age. That was their fly in the ointment. They were actually wrong about the institution of marriage and its relationship from this age to the age that's to come. It's not the same. And, and Jesus says that you're wrong. No, it's not like that at all. The marriage is absolutely essential in our age. It will not be needed in the age to come. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, and we can't go too far down this path due to time, ask yourself, why not? Well, actually, Luke's version of this story helps us a bit. You can, you can check it out, Luke chapter 20, and there in Luke 20, verse 36, uh, surrounding the same moment in the story, um, we're told that they won't be, won't be marriage and there won't be giving in marriage in heaven for they will not die anymore. We don't see that in Mark's retelling. He's not making that point particularly here. But Luke is saying for they won't die anymore. Now why is that important to marriage? Well, you may remember that one of the fundamental reasons for marriage back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2 was what? Procreation. The continuation of the human race. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be eternally secure. There won't be a need for the perpetuation of the human race. That's the implication that's given there in Luke 20. And in fact, he goes on to say, we will be like the angels. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means like the angels who are immortal and eternal and do not die. They continue on forever. They're going to be like the angels in that regard. There won't be marriage. So the mistake that the Sadducees were making of equating this age with the age to come in the institution of marriage is the beginning of the problems theologically that Jesus says you, you here are wrong. But the biggest error that they make is, well, it's not believing in the resurrection. And so Jesus takes them back to the writings of Moses. Oh, by the way, the writings of Moses are the only writings that the Sadducees held to. They're also a difference between them and the Pharisees. The Pharisees held to the prophets and the other writings in the Old Testament. They only held to the law. So isn't it interesting that Jesus now is going to use the only section of Scripture that they consider authoritative to prove them wrong? Okay, that's wise. And they started, Moses told us this because Moses is the only person they listen to. And Jesus says, well, let me go back to that Moses. And he goes back to Moses there in verse 19 and reminds them of the story of the bush. And of course, this is the burning bush story as Moses is there on the, the side of the hill keeping sheep after he has run from Egypt uh, for, his own, uh, for his own survival, for his own life. And there, when God shows up speaking in the bush, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, at the point that God is speaking to Moses and saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long gone, earthly speaking. Okay, they are bones in the ground. They are dead and have been for a long time. But when God speaks to Moses about them, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does he say? I am the God. As if they're present with him. <laughs> as if they're alive. As if though they're dead in one form, are alive in the most important form. They are presently in the presence 
of Almighty God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, you Sadducees. That's who you think God is. <laughs> there is no resurrection. He's the God of the dead. Whoopee. He's the God of the living. That's who this God is. He is the God of the living. Now notice that Jesus is doing here. He is dealing with the very issues that they have brought to him in a way that gives appropriate defense of the truth of the Scripture. They put him in a dilemma. He came always being ready to give a defense. In the language of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he came to give a defense from the very truth of the Word of God, claiming that they were wrong, and here is what is right. He is teaching to them the truth, and what is he doing? He is relying upon the Word of God to do it. This is going to lead us to our third point, the dilemma, the defense, now what? The direction. And really, I want to speak to us. I want to speak to us more in this third point, the application of this particular text. You see, the back and forth with the Sadducees is more than just another challenge on Jesus' path to the cross. It's this picture of why and how we go wrong so often. Not just the Sadducees, but how all of us go wrong so often. Notice verse 24 again, because here it's where Jesus spells it out so clearly. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. This is how they went wrong. Two things. They didn't know the Scriptures. And they didn't know the power of God. That's how they went wrong. Jesus, in saying that, is also giving us direction. Direction how? He wants you to know that when you go wrong, these are the things that are wrong. You are not knowing the Scriptures. And you are not aware of the power of God. That's what's going on in your life when you go wrong. Now, do a test case on yourself. When you were fearful and anxious this week, or you were fighting mad about something that was going on, isn't it more than likely that something in this world was taking greater precedent in your life over and against the power of the gospel and the reality of Christ and His kingship? That something here was more important to you than what ought to be the eternal and ultimate things that the Scripture lays out for us as that which we ought to serve. Isn't that probably what happened? If you do a quick diagnostic on your own soul, we'll know this. You're not following the Scriptures. And you are void of the power of God in that moment. That's what's happening spiritually. That's phenomenologically what's actually taking place. You've lost sight of the promises of the Word. You've now become consumed with the things of the world. You're using the power of the flesh, not the power of the Spirit. You're listening to news reports over against the Scriptures. Whatever the thing is for you, what has happened is, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And what has happened? It has caused you to slip into sin. You have gone wrong. You have fallen off the apple cart. Jesus, when he says this to the Sadducees, he is uh, certainly addressing their particular circumstances uh, in this moment to oppose them with regards to the dilemma, but I think he's doing more than that. He's showing us what it is we need, that we need the Scriptures. 
Isn't it interesting that the Scripture speaks about the Scripture all the time? And when the Scripture speaks about the Scripture, it speaks of it in the loftiest of terms. Like 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all Scripture, even the weird section of Mark chapter 12, is inspired by God, literally the breath of God. It is breathed out by Him. Theopanustos is the Greek. It's breathed out by God. It's His very breathed out words. And it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice this, that the man of God may be complete. Do you, Anybody in here want to be complete? Equipped for some good works? Every good work. It's an amazing verse. Now look at us. We thought we needed more than the Scripture. Didn't we? (laughs) We, We've been going to all kinds of other broken cisterns looking to quench our thirst. And the Scripture is telling us that God is literally talking to you and has inscribed His words to you in the Scriptures and it is the only tool that He has given to make you complete and equipped for every good work. If you sense that you need to be complete and equipped for every good work, ask yourself, are you reading and meditating and drinking in the Scriptures? Know the Scriptures. Think of yourself this week as you may have even in the course of prayer like given a dilemma to God. Lord, I don't know how you're going to get out of this one. I mean, you've given me this financial situation and now I've got this family circumstance and now this health thing is plaguing me. I don't have any idea how you're going to get out of this dilemma. You've promised these things and you, you know, here you are sort of angry, fuming uh, a little bit. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden someone comes and speaks to you Or by God's grace, he reminds you of a verse that you've read in the scriptures and you begin to realize that you have been holding this and thinking about this and reflecting on this all wrong. You have gone wrong. Isn't the reason you've gone wrong? Because you don't know the scriptures. And, And then when the scripture came, what happened inside your soul? Clarity. Rest, peace, hope, direction, confidence. Do you know what began to happen? The power of God coming through the scriptures. The spirit and the truth work together. They come together and they speak and they teach and they direct and they guide us. One thing that Jesus is teaching us from this text is that we must be sure that our convictions and our beliefs are held tightly to the Word of God. And we must be vigilant when we spot areas where we have gone wrong to bring those, those ideas, those beliefs, and those practices into line with the straight edge of the Scripture. The Scriptures are how we course correct. They are also the course by which we walk. This is the straight way that leads us to Christ, by going to His Word. But know this, the Sadducees knew some of the Scriptures. (laughs) Obviously, they're using Deuteronomy 25. 
It's possible, get this, it's possible to know the Scriptures and to not know the Scriptures. The Pharisees could quote whole books of the Old Testament and they didn't know the Scriptures. They knew the content of the Bible, but they didn't know its meaning. They did not have the spiritual power of God illuminating to them the reality of that truth that was bringing forth a change to life so that they had truly embraced the gospel. In fact, they had actually used the scripture as a pedestal for their own ego. This is why often in churches, religious people are the most intolerable types because they know all the truth. And they know that they know all the truth. Which if they knew the truth, they'd be humble about it. That's part of what the text is teaching us. Is that we need to know the scriptures. But listen, Bible content alone is not a silver bullet. The power of God through the Spirit has got to take that word. And it's got to change us from the inside out. That's why we need Romans 1.16. We need the teaching that for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that teaches me that I'm not enough. That I am broken and fallen and in desperate need of his grace. That I couldn't put one foot in front of another without him. That all things are possible only with him, but with me they're going to be completely impossible. That I'm totally at his mercy. And he teaches me that from the cover, from Genesis to Revelation. He teaches me in the Bible that he is a loving God, a gracious and forgiving God. He's calling me back to be humble so that he can teach me his word. That I would be shaped by that word. That's when the power of God is coming in. Strengthening us with his strength. Giving to us his peace. Not a fabricated or made up kind. Not a blustery man-filled arrogance, but but a steely, spirit-filled confidence. Just fundamentally different. We have to know the Scriptures, but we have to know the Gospel, because as Paul put it, it is what? The power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God. We've got to know the Gospel in the Word, and it's got to register deeply to us. As we think about these challenges from this text, the dilemmas that we face in life, the defenses that we need to give in our own day and time, in gentle and respectful ways, as 1 Peter tells us to, uh, but being ready to know the Scriptures, but to do so with the grace of God, to do so with the power of God at our disposal, this is how we gain direction. Through the dilemmas of life, being equipped to defend God, To do it in the way that he has called us as apologists. His witness bearers in the world. Because this is ultimately what Jesus has come to do. You remember Jesus in the earliest of days. It was there that his parents had lost him. (laughs) And they'd gone to Jerusalem. And they went to go look for him. And where did they find him? They they found him in the temple. What was he talking about? The scriptures. He was asking questions and they were amazed at all that he knew. When he, when he stood up and taught, he taught not like one of the Pharisees. He taught like one who had authority. He knew the word backwards and forwards. When he spoke in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. What? He came to fulfill it. Every day of his life was eating and drinking the word of the living God. So that what? Within himself, he would become for us the very power of God. And that's what he is. Our Jesus, 
our Savior, we're told, is full of grace, gospel power, and truth. Full of grace and truth. If we are going to become faithful witnesses of Christ in our time, we can't have truth without grace. We can't have grace without truth. We've got to have truth and grace. That's how Christ came. That's the power of God in Christ. And it's the power of our witness to the world that desperately needs to hear. You are wrong. But let me lead you to him who is so right. Who is so right. Who will forgive your wrong. Who loves you and he came. That you might be made right. Righteous in God's sight. To be your mediator between God and man. There is still time For you to trust in the one who is full of truth and full of grace. Don't you think that a witness like that might actually have a hearing among God's people in the world today? That maybe even someone like Ira Glass, who knows, uh, might find that there is something more to the prayers. And that there is a God worth serving, different than his Judaism for sure. There is a God who has come. And there is a prayer to be prayed. And that prayer is not merely for psychological comfort or to feel good existentially. That prayer is full of truth and full of grace because it touches upon the foundations of the world and the essence of what is eternal. And Christian, you are the one who has been given that in Christ. And he's put a word in your lap. He's given you his scriptures. Know his scriptures. Know the power of the gospel in the scriptures. Take those scriptures, as Jesus did in this text, to defend and to persuasively win. Win in witness for the glorious Christ, the one who is worthy for all people everywhere to call him Savior and Lord. Maybe through your witness, he will do just that. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us these truths in deep and profound ways even this day. And that we would walk in accordance to this, the word that you've spoken to us. Come now and drive it home in our hearts as we continue to worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.